It is a privilege and a great delight to be among you tonight. Um, we're here on vacation, and one of the best parts of uh, our vacation, what we talk about and we expect, is to be together and to worship the Lord at Harvest Church. Uh, it's something that we long for in a sense. As a pastor, I don't have many opportunities to sit with my family and worship with them. Uh, and here, when we're on vacation, uh, I have this opportunity to worship the Lord with my family, which is such a privilege. Don't take that for granted. And uh, believe me, it, it, it does take a toll on a pastor's families, not being able to worship together, sit together in the roles of church, and just be a family, not the pastor's family. But we are very happy to be here. We came to spend a whole month of vacation and to spend time with family. They will have to bear us for a whole month and we're, you know, staying at different houses. So they made sure we're not gonna, we don't have to stay in a single house and it'll make it easier for them. But uh, we're very happy and delighted to be here. I was asked to speak a little bit of what we're doing here. As many of you know, uh, we are planting a church in South Brazil. Um, we, I have been doing this since, I, um, since uh, we got married six years ago. And the Lord has, has blessed us uh, greatly. Things are doing very well in church. We think we are close in achieving self-sufficiency and then this church will become an independent church. So we are um, very excited about 2018 and what will happen. The Lord has blessed us in, in many areas. Um, uh, not only the church is growing, but our family is growing. We have Owen, that is two and a half. We have Olivia, that is one year and two months. And also Bethany is expecting our third child. So we are very happy and... and um, we're grateful to God and what He's doing in, in our family there. Uh, I want to ask you to open your Bibles in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. We will talk tonight about prayer and evangelism, or steadfast prayer, and salted conversations, as Paul himself puts it in a text. Yes, it's going to be another sermon about prayer and evangelism. Uh, I believe we cannot hear enough about these two things, and I will try to show you why tonight. So, Colossians chapter 4, Verses 2 to 6. I'll read God's Word. Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 to 6. Here's God's Word. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open us a door for the word 
to declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in prison, that I may that I make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So far, God's word. Let us pray again. Lord, I pray that you will teach us, nourish us, encourage us today, tonight, to pray and to evangelize. And I pray, O oh Lord, that your word will become clear and that despite, O oh Lord, all my, my limitations, my brothers and sisters will be fed tonight by your word. I pray, O oh Lord, that in Jesus' name, amen. Some say, some biographers say that John Knox died praying. It seems that this is a myth. He didn't literally die praying. But some biographers do say that he died praying. He got uh, sick and he was um, unable even to speak. And when he got a little better, one day he asked his wife to read the Bible. And as she started reading the Bible, he uh, he started to pray. As she was reading the Bible, he, lift, uh, he lifted up his voice loudly, and he started to pray for the Church of Scotland. And it seems that he exerted so, so much strength that he then passed away. That's how some biographers describe John Knox's death. And they say that he died as he lived. John Knox was a man of prayer. All these great men of God, men that were used by God in the past, if you look into their lives, if you study their lives, if you read biographies about them, you will soon realize they were men of prayer. John Knox was such a man of prayer that the Queen of Scotland when war broke out among the Reformed and the Catholics, and she was a Catholic, she said, I don't fear the armies of England who were supporting John Knox's party in the war. She says, I don't fear the cannons of the Englishmen. Englishmen. I fear the prayers of John Knox. Does anyone fear your prayers? John Knox had a passion for the Word. And he has a famous prayer, a very short one. You probably know it. Which is, Lord God, give me Scotland or I'll die. That was his prayer. Give me Scotland. He didn't want anything more, but anything less than his own countrymen before the cross of Jesus Christ. A true church in which they could worship God, in which people could come and hear the gospel being preached. He had a passion for exactly these two things that we're going to speak tonight, evangelism and prayer. I, I believe that every true Christian 
deeply rooted in the cross should have a passion for prayer and evangelism. And that's what this text that we are um, that we read tonight speaks about. When Paul writes this letter to the Colossians, he didn't know them. It was not Paul that first preached at Colossus. It was probably one of his disciples, a man called Epaphras. He's mentioned in this letter in the same chapter 4, verse 12. And when Paul was in prison, probably the year 62 AD, this very same man, Epaphras, come to Paul with probably some offering, some help, um, financial help to Paul. And he brings the news about the church in his region. And they were good news, exciting news. The church was doing well. Paul in chapter 1 says, I, I'm, I exalt God for what I heard about what is God is doing among you. That the church is growing and that the church is being strengthened. But also Epaphras brought, a, brought to the knowledge of Paul one problem that was happening in the church or churches in that region. It's that they were drifting away from the supremacy of Jesus Christ in their lives. And that is dangerous. So that's why Paul wrote to them this letter. This letter is about the supremacy of Christ. This letter is about Christ is all that we need and nothing else. Christ is the solution to all things. And in Christ, you find the answer to all your questions. So, Paul says to us in the beginning of chapter 2, and I read from NIV. I'm sorry if you're against NIV or something, but I know in the past had been some debate at Harvest about that, but I'm sorry if I touch your nerve. I hope not. But NIV says this, chapter 2. My goal in that letter is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. In summary, Paul tells the Colossians that I would like you to know the full riches, full riches and the complete understanding that are in Christ. And then you will become united, wise, and knowledgeable. All that harvest needs is the knowledge of the supremacy of Christ. Then there will be unity, there will be wisdom, and there will be knowledge. All that you need in your life is the supremacy of Christ. And then you'll be one with the church and the kingdom. You'll be wise and knowledgeable. 
But the Colossians, as I said, were drifting away, and some have called this problem in Colossus, they called the Colossian heresy. You probably heard of that word. It has been mis misused, and there's a big debate about what was the real problem of the church there. But we can say with some certainty that the problem that was happening in the church of Colossus was that um, they, um, it, it was a comprehension of the means of how you grow in Christ. Is It was an understanding about how you grow in faith. And um, some believed in, in, in the church of Colossus and probably Laodicea in Hierapolis, two churches that were close there, that you grow in faith through spiritual exercises. If you practice them enough, you climb up the ladder, you climb up the steps of the spiritual ladder and achieve a higher understanding of the spiritual mysteries. It is a sort of mysticism, asceticism founded in a dualistic philosophy. And part of it involved returning to the Old Testament practices. I want to invite you to look back in your Bibles on chapter 2. We'll read a few verses that might show the problem that was happening in the church. Chapter 2, verse 8, Paul says this. He says, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elements elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So he says, be careful that you are growing in philosophy and vain understanding and not really in Christ. Verse 16, he says, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Verse 18, let no one disqualify you insisting on asceticism and worship of angels going on at detail about visions puffed up without reason by his sensuous mind. Verse 20, if with Christ you died to elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. Referring to things that all perish as they are used according to human precepts and teaching. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity of the body. But they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So you see... There was people in the church of Colossus that had this pattern of life. They said, if you're a Christian, you cannot eat that. If you're a Christian, you dress up this way. If you're a Christian, you don't go to this place. If you are a Christian, you do these things here regularly. That's So the church of Colossus was drifting away from the supremacy of Christ and what is found in Christ to regulations based on a dualistic philosophy, the practices of 
things that they thought would uh, make them grow. And that's why Paul wants to warn them. He, he, he warns them about the dangers of such a, uh, of such a problem. The problem of the Colossian church uh, is in fact two. Is that if you believe that through spiritual exercises you can grow in your faith, first, you will create classes of Christians among the church. So you have those that are highly spiritual because they do exercise a lot. And you have those that are, you know, second class and all. Maybe you think you are a second-class Christian because you don't pray as much. You don't do as much as people in church. Maybe you see people doing a lot in church and you think, well, I'm a second-class Christian. But it's not about how much we do. It's about Christ in you, the hope of glory. Those that are doing could not be doing through Christ. Then it's worthless, it's useless. And that was a problem in the church of Colossus. It was uh, creating these categories of who is higher spiritually and who is lower spiritually. The second problem, obviously, their biggest problem is that Christ was not enough. And when Christ is not enough, we are doomed to unhappiness, to the lack of peace, to restlessness, to look things that will fulfill and will give us what only Christ can give us. So we jump from here to there, we try this, we try this other, we go to this prayer group, we go to this other church, we, we, we find this Bible study thing, this book, this new movement. We go from here to there because we don't have Christ. So we try through the means to find the essence. Or we attribute the means what it should be given to the essence. And that's what Paul is telling them. What you're looking for, you will only find in Christ. And that's what Paul says to them in chapter 3, verse 9 and 10. He says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have to put on the new self, which has been renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. Paul is using the image here of undressing and dressing. And he says, you have to undress the old man and to be dressed with the new clothes that Christ has given to you through His sacrifice on a cross. And then you'll be able to accomplish all the things that you must do. And that... He proceeds to show that if you are clothed, this word is difficult for me, clothed. Is that okay? If you're dressed of Jesus Christ with the garments that were given to you through the blood and the cross of Jesus Christ, then 
you will win in the struggle against sin. That's what he says in the rest of chapter 3. And also, this will influence you on the things that you might think that are mundane, but they're very spiritual, like marriage, raising children, and work. See, it is possible that we think that prayer is more spiritual than being a good father. It is possible that we think that if I read three or five chapters a day of the Bible, I'm being a better Christian, despite the fact that I'm not doing what I should do with my children. See, we have these spiritual categories that make us think in terms of being better or worse. And this seems to have been the problem in this church that Paul is addressing, is that what you need Christ is not spiritual exercises, it's not this or that. When you truly live in Christ, you will be a good husband, a good wife, a good parent, a good children, also a good worker or a good boss. Living in Christ will deeply influence you the way you live your life. Because living in Christ will change all the areas in your life. Brothers and sisters, do not, do not be fooled. Don't think that you can be someone in one place and you can be the Christian in another place. Don't think that you can be a Christian in church or with the church folk or at home, but you can be not so Christian at work. The fact that there are areas of our lives that are not truly Christian or consecrated to the Lord means that we're not living deeply or totally in the supremacy of Christ over our lives. And that's where Paul then gets to prayer and evangelism in chapter 4. I am deeply convinced that Paul's point here is to show the Colossians that all those useless spiritual exercises, the dietary principles, the study and knowledge of the angels, the practice of circumcision, and the religious ceremonies and the calendar, all these spiritual exercises, they should be replaced by only two things. They should be replaced by prayer and evangelism. But let us understand that. Paul is not saying that you should use prayer and evangelism as spiritual exercises instead of the others. What Paul is really saying is that truly prayer and evangelism are the result of being deeply rooted in Christ and will naturally flow from being deeply rooted in Christ. And they are the sum of piety in one's life, in Christian's life. Yes, I'm saying that your Christian life can be measured by how much you pray and how much you evangelize. I do believe in that. I do believe that if you truly live in Christ, you will pray more. You will evangelize more. And I do believe that's what Paul is saying here. See, we usually um, 
use those things as a sort of spiritual lever, you know, spiritual money. So in a week that I prayed, you know, almost every day for some time, and that I had talked to someone at work, I feel bad about, I feel good about myself, right? You feel like, oh yeah, worship service will be great Sunday because I'm in the spirit. Because, you know, I prayed almost every day and I talked to people about Christ. I, I feel good about myself. See, that's when you're missing the point. That, that's when it, it's wrong. That's when you're doing the exact thing as the Colossians are doing. You're using these things as a sort of a spiritual exercise to climb uh, the steps of the spiritual ladder. Prayer and evangelism should flow naturally from being in Christ. You should have a need of doing these things. It should be natural to you. It should be automatic. No one should have to tell you, go pray. Because you should have the need of being in fellowship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit in prayer. Because if you're deeply rooted in Christ... You will want that. No one tells a teenage couple, oh, you should date more. Oh, you should, you're not seeing yourselves enough. I mean, you should, uh, you know, go see your girlfriend, my son. Why you're here? Why? Because when you first fall in love, you just want to be with that person, right? It's a passion. It, it's, you want to. And that's how we should feel about being with the Lord in prayer. That's, I believe, how Jesus felt. Jesus had that deep, intense need of prayer. Not as a spiritual exercise, but to be in, in fellowship and communion with God. And that, at the same time, would lead him to preach God's word. So, our text is divided, verses 2, 3, and 4. Paul talks about prayer. In verses 5 and 6, he talks about evangelism. And I would like to talk a little bit about these two things before we draw some conclusions. In verse 2, Paul says, Continue steadfastly in prayer. This phrase is important. Because there's no Christian that I know of that will say, I, I think I pray enough. It could be someone that prays a lot. And this person will say, oh, I wish I could pray more. I, I, I could be sure that you want to pray more, right? And I am sure you could say many things about why you don't pray more. I don't have time. That's the number one excuse. It's like, life is so busy. Things are so 
You don't forget to eat, do you? You don't forget to do the things that you like, watching TV once in a while, I mean, or going out. But we do not pray. And, and that's why I believe we try to pray sometimes without having the sufficiency of Christ in our lives. And we are doomed to fail. Because again, we are using prayer as a means of something and not the result of Christ being in us. So many are using prayer as a means of something like fighting sin, growing in faith, achieve higher sanctification, or even to move God's will to cure, to heal. But in the text, Paul says, continue steadfastly in prayer. Do you know what it means? Have a life of prayer. It means don't pray here and there for something that come up. But you should have a life of prayer. The King James Bible bring, translates this as only continue. The NIV translates as devout yourself to prayer. But I, I believe the ESV brings the, the best translation that conveys the, the, the idea of the text, which is continue steadfastly in prayer. The Portuguese translation actually brings persevere in prayer, which is also a good translation. Because true prayer is not praying once in a while. A Christian that prays is a Christian that have a life of prayer. It has been said about Martin Luther that he was a great man of God and a man of prayer. And that once he said, his colleagues, his friends, he said, oh, I usually pray four hours a day. But when I'm very, very busy, then I pray six. It doesn't make sense, right? Yeah, some things of, of men of faith doesn't make sense to us. We don't know if that's true or not as a myth. But it makes sense. Because when you're busy, that's when you need to pray more. In Ephesians 5.18, Paul says, pray at all times. The church in Acts is described as persevering in the doctrine of the apostles, in fellowship, breaking the bread, and prayer. It was a church of prayer. They are seen in many times praying. And I ask myself, why is our prayer meetings the least attended of all church programs? Why, why is that? People are busy, right? It's the middle of the week. Sometimes the, um, the, the, the hour, the day is not, doesn't work for everyone. But come on, we surely could have more people, right? Why are prayer meetings have so little people? But if, if we do some other thing, people will show up. Because a person who prays has a life of prayer. 
Prayer is not as much, again, a means to something, but should firstly be the result of being deeply in Christ. So when you glorify Christ, putting sin to death, dressing the new clothes that honor Him in your marriage, in your family, in your life, in general, at work, then praying will be just a natural continuation of that. You will desire to be in fellowship with God. You will have a steadfast life of prayer. And that's why, for instance, when you come from a great conference and you're very excited about your Christian life and you say, oh yeah, I'll pray, I, 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 I will, you know, you come empowered and you're like, ah, yes, I, uh, God spoke to me, it was so great, I'll, you know, you come all excited and you start to pray and the first day you pray and the second and you do the first week and if you persevere the second week, but then at the third week things if not before, starts to, that all that strength fades away. Uh, it's, it's because we were nourished and motivated by the Word of God preached in that conference. And we had a fellowship that made Christ be big in us. So we had and we came excited and had a natural desire of praying. But as we came back to our normal life, and we came back to the same worldly things that we usually do, sitting in front of the TV, doing the things that we do regularly. We didn't build Christ. We didn't continue to enhance the glory of Christ in our lives. Then we started to get weak. And then prayer is not as exciting as it was. Paul qualifies prayer with a few words in here. He says, like, being watchful in verse 2. The word is a word that, uh, uh, from the name Gregory. Gregory is a guard, is a watch um, guard. And the word refers to a spiritual state of awareness. Is the word that Jesus uses at the Gethsemane when he says, Pray with me and watch the night before he um, was nailed to the cross. But his disciples were concerned about the worldly things. And they couldn't pray because they were not watching. They were not prepared for the death of Jesus. They didn't pray. This word watching means this spiritual awareness. It's actually a, a consciousness of what God is doing, of the true things that are happening around us that will lead us to, play, to pray. And this word occurs, uh, this word is used in the Bible in many texts. For instance, it is used about the coming of Jesus in Apocalypse or Revelation 16.15. She says, the text says, look, I come like a thief. Blessed are those who stay awake and remain closed. Also Peter 5.18 Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Or 1 Corinthians 16.13 Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. So you see, this word is used for waiting Christ 
for being on guard against Satan, Satan for uh, living a life of sanctification. This word refers to, uh, it's a, a, a general word for being alert, spiritually alert. It means a live prayer in the text. Your prayers should have life. And, and sometimes that's why we cannot persevere in prayer because our prayers, they are... They're dead. It, it's unnatural. We're not with this spiritual awareness of things. Paul also says that we should use thanksgiving. We know that prayer is petition. We don't need to teach that. Prayer is basically to ask God for something. But Paul is reminding them that they should thank God also. Thank God also. It's interesting that we start praying when things go bad, right? It means that we are asking God for something. So when things are difficult, we start praying. And we do ask God, and we should ask God for all things. But those that have a life of prayer that are spiritually alert, aware of things, they have this heart of praise, of thanksgiving. Prayer for them is not a tool, a means, an instrument to ask God for something. It is also a, um, an instrument of, of praise. When we look at the um, Lord's Prayer, we will see that we can ask for the bread only after we ask for the kingdom, the name, and the sanctity of God. So after we ask for the kingdom of God, the, the glory of the name of God, and the sanctity of God, then we can ask for bread. That's what the Lord Prayer teaches us. The fourth petition is bread. But the first three are related to God. And Paul then, in, a first, in, our, ta in our text, verse 3 and 4, he gives them a task. I'm not going into detail in this, these two verses, but Paul says, well, by the way, pray for me so I can preach the word faithfully. He's saying to the Colossians, don't only pray for yourselves. Remember the kingdom. Be alert. Be on your guard. Think of the kingdom and what God is doing and use your prayer as a means of thankfulness and intercession for the kingdom of God. It is in a in a sense, he's giving them a task to prove the point that he's making here. It's like, do this in your prayer as I'm teaching you the means of prayer. So does your prayer look like that? Is a deep reflection of spiritual awareness? Do you see the needs of the church? the needs of the kingdom, the
the needs of people around you and you fall on your knees and you pray for them minutes, hours. And you thank God for what He's doing and you pray for the missionaries. Is, is that your prayer? That is prayer. Or you just thank God for the food and you sit at the table and you pray you know, that short prayer after reading the devotions in the morning. That's not prayer. That's some prayer, but that's not the steadfast prayer. That's not the life of prayer that Paul is talking about. That is not the life of prayer that flows from the sufficiency of Christ. We think that some people are special because they do that. And we admire them. We say, ah, this is a great man of God because he prays. This is a great woman of God because she prays. Why not you? What's wrong with your spiritual life that you cannot be that great man of prayer, that great woman of prayer? Why not us? Why not you? Don't we serve the same Christ? Isn't prayer a special gift that some, some have and others don't? What are you doing in your free time? The second thing that Paul says in a text is that we should walk in wisdom. Verses 5 and 6. And that is evangelism. You may think that this is... No, this is living a life of practical Christianity. No, because Paul makes it clear in verse 6 that he says, Let your speech always be gracious. So when he says to walk in wisdom toward the outsiders... He's saying that you should be always using every opportunity to speak to outsiders. And that's what it means by the phrase in verse 5, making the best use of your time. Have you heard the word carpe diem? It's a Latin phrase, right? It's used a lot in the world. It's not a Christian phrase. People will say, enjoy your day. So it's like, make the best of your day for your enjoyment. Is that what Paul is saying here? No. He's saying, you will make the best of your day when you use it to speak to others about the supremacy of Jesus Christ in your life. So you take every opportunity to speak about Jesus Christ. That same Jesus Christ you had been in fellowship when you woke up five in the morning, six in the morning to pray with that spiritual awareness that you have. Use every opportunity to talk about that same Jesus Christ, about what He's doing, how great He is, that He is the solution really to all our problems, the great promises that He has made for us. So that's what He's saying. Use every opportunity. There's a man in my church. His name is Silas. Suggested name, missionary. He's 80, 86. He had a stroke, so he limps a little bit. Uh, but he's a great man of God. And I'm uh, sometimes ashamed of myself uh, for talking to him. Um, he doesn't talk to anyone for two minutes, you know, more than two minutes. 
that he won't mention Christ. It's unbelievable. And I sometimes drive him to church because he obviously can't drive or uh, come in any other way. And we were talking one time and he said, you know, pastor, my method that I use to talk to people. And I said, what is it, Brother Silas? He says, I ask their name and they say, um, such. And I say, oh, you know that this name is in the Bible? And then from there he starts to uh, talk about his faith. He is really a man that doesn't lose a single opportunity for it. He's 86. He has no time to lose. He spent his life addicted to alcohol. Until 14 years ago, he was saved by Christ. And he doesn't want to lose a single minute. But then I asked Brother Silas, and what, it, what does it happen when the person says a name that is not in the Bible? What do you do? And he says, that's easy, Pastor. I say, do you know that your name is not in the Bible? <laughs> Smart. Smart. I feel ashamed of myself. Brother Silas is deeply in love for Jesus Christ and what Christ has done in his life. And he truly cannot talk to someone without talking about Jesus Christ. He doesn't sleep much. And I know that he spends nights in prayer. And it seems that both things come together as they do in our text. Our text says that your word should be always seasoned with salt. And this is probably a reference to Matthew 5.12, in which we should be the salt of the earth. This, we're, this expression here is not saying that you should take care about the things that you say. They should be watching your mouth. It, should, it says that you should make a difference with your words. Your word should salt the conversation. You shouldn't just go along. Be bland. Have you heard what, what was the latest Trump tweet? Yeah, I heard. So impressive. Yeah, what, he said this and that. Oh, great. Well, maybe you could change the topic and salt it a little bit and put Christ in the middle of this conversation. Be careful. The word does not pepper your conversation. Do not discuss opinions. Do not be harsh. Do not criticize. You should not spice it up. You should salt it. And Paul says, so you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is a similar thing that Peter has said in his letter when he says that you should be always prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason of your hope that you have. You should be ready always 
to talk about Christ. Always to talk about Christ. In any conversation, in any situation, and the Lord will use you. Well, brothers and sisters, I hope that these words do not disencourage you from prayer and evangelism. And I hope that you start a life of prayer and evangelism, not trying to pray or to evangelize, but to enhance Christ in your life. And when you truly live Christ, live Christ in all areas of your life, you live the supremacy of Christ, then things will start to happen. Don't use prayer or evangelism as a way of measuring us horizontally or a spiritual lever to achieve some things. Don't ever use prayer and evangelism as that. Don't think that they are special things for special people of God. Prayer and evangelism are truly the natural ending result of living in Christ. And all of us should be men and women of prayer and salted conversations. In the measure that we live Christ in our lives, we will pray and we will season our conversations with salt. So seek Christ deeply. Stop thinking of your spiritual life as a test, an exam. Just seek for Christ. And then, as He's glorified in your life, you will have a life of steadfast prayer and salted conversations. We will sing a hymn before the benediction. Uh, hymn 585, Take My Life and Let It Be.